You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at harvestniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. Amen. I invite you to take a seat this morning and turn with me in your Bibles to uh, Judges chapter 17. Uh, Judges chapter 17. As always, uh, we have Bibles for you. If you didn't bring a copy of God's Word with you today, uh, just stick your hand up. One of our ushers will be more than happy uh, to give you the living and active Word of God. If you don't have one at home, please, please, please take it home with you. This is our gift to you, and we encourage you to read it with a heart to seek the Lord. And God promises when you seek Him, you will find Him. Uh, Judges chapter 17 and 18, we're wrapping up almost the study of Judges, broken heroes, uh, pointing us to the one true hero that God has given us in his son, Jesus Christ. And up to this point in Judges, the focus has been on uh, the external threats to Israel, the different nations that have come and by God's design oppressed Israel because of their sin and their idolatry. And when we've seen how God's delivered them, we've been focusing on how God has rescued from the external uh, threats that have come against Israel. But now we turn to the internal threats that really uh, Israel battled, which were even of greater detriment than the external threats, were the battles that they fought within themselves, within their own hearts, that put them in the place where they were under oppression in the first place. What's the biggest enemy that Israel faced in the book of Judges? It was Israel. And we've watched through the Judges as they've digressed from decent to really dastardly and morally declined, culminating last week with Samson, who really did nothing right his whole life except for a final prayer at the end. And we look at his life we're like, man, if Samson was that bad, how bad really was Israel? Let's be honest, Samson was a snapshot of where Israel was truly at at that point in their lives. They, they had abandoned everything to do with God, just like Samson. How low did they really go? Well, Judges closes with two sections, chapters 17 and 18 this week, then 19 to 21 uh, next week, and they're characterized by statements like this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. It says it four times in the last five chapters. It also says this, that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. It was anarchy in Israel. It was chaos in Israel. The last five chapters are really no longer tracking the judges. It's really a snapshot, an appendix, revealing to us the frightening depths of depravity, religiously, morally, and politically, that Israel fell to. Picture the Vancouver riots a few years ago on steroids. This was the nation of Israel. Like I said, their biggest threat was themselves, and here's the two things that that were the biggest realities that they fought that brought them to their lowest of lows, their disregard for God involving their religious practices and worship, and their lack of community unity. Case in point, the story of Micah that we find here in Judges 17, not Micah the prophet, Micah the little man from Ephraim, who, show us, who shows us clearly that gone in Israel was an awe of God at this point. Gone in Israel was a commitment to true worship. Gone in Israel was a commitment and dedication of faith practices. And I believe as we study this, it's a word for us today as we look around at our own hearts first and foremost, but our own culture and say, where am I? Where are we in relation to how God desires us to relate to him? Because here's the truth you want to focus on this morning. My expressions of faith matter to God. 
My expressions of faith matter to God. Somehow in our culture, we think religious freedom means that we can come to God any way we want. We can, we can relate to God how I see fit, what I deem right, how I feel is right. And yet God shows us that's not the way we relate to God as evidenced by chapter 17 and 18. Let me talk you through this this morning and to help you understand fully the passages at hand. Number one, I want to summarize chapter 17 with this phrase, worship of God is not a matter of personal opinion. Worship of God is not a matter of personal opinion. Again, two chapters I'm going to highlight, but as I, as I talk, I'm going to help you understand the, the full reality of what's happening here. Because you read this once, you just kind of glass over the surface. Oh, I think I understand what's going on. You study it, and you find that there's way more going on here than I ever thought. Look at 17, verse 1. There was a man of the hill country out in the sticks, the hicks, of Ephraim, whose name was Micah. Micah is going to be a microcosm of the macrocosm. His name means who is like Yahweh. So obviously right away we're introduced to this man named Micah. We understand that he probably came from a God-fearing home. Who else would name their kid with something that means who else is like Yahweh? So probably he was a part of a family that went to church on Sunday morning and they took the kids to student ministry. They said their prayers before meals. They maybe even had times of family worship. And they also, they also probably aimed to live out their Christian life on a daily basis, doing some good things for the Lord. So this is the, the context. He comes from a little good Christian family and, and also probably a wealthy Christian family. Not just religious, but affluent because we see in the next verse that uh, someone stole 1,100 shekels from Micah's mom. And... Uh, 1,100 shekels is not like loose change around the house back in the days, but like we learned last week, it was the same amount that, that um, the Philistines gave Delilah for Samson, about $90,000, and this caused his mother obviously great grief, and so she called down curses upon whoever stole the money. God cursed them in the name of Yahweh. This caused Micah some concern because actually he's the culprit. Can you imagine living sitting in your room listening to your mom call curses on the robber knowing that you're the robber? Micah all of a sudden got some holy conviction. Fessed up to his mom and said, Mom, actually, I did it. And you see his mom, uh, true to form, she was obviously a good Christian woman. She's super forgiving, as we generally are with our own kids, right? Super forgiving. And so she then prays another prayer to Yahweh. Look what she says here. She actually prays a prayer of blessing. Blessed be my son by the Lord. And so it's kind of a reverse the curse. Okay, God, nullify the curse. Now bless him. And showing us how godly she is, it says, you know what, to Micah, I'm going to take these 1,100 shekels and I'm going to dedicate them to the Lord. We think, wow, this is amazing. This, some priest is going to get a really big offering on Sunday morning. Or maybe we're going to see an orphanage started. But instead, she does something completely backwards. She said all the right things, but did all the wrong things. Right words, wrong actions. Out of the 1,100 shekels, she took 200 immediately to a silversmith and had to make some idols, make some idols for her son. You're like, what? Interesting how we can give lip service and look so spiritual and yet do all the wrong things. So... One idol cast made out of wood and probably coated with silver. Another one made out of metal. She, she has these idols made for her son. Clearly, clearly this is going backwards. Already, already we see who is like the Lord, the name of Micah. Well, Micah's not like the Lord. He stole from his mother, disregarded his mother, breaking two of the Ten Commandments right there. His mother's definitely not like the Lord, making idols, which is clearly prohibited. This is the moral state of Israel at this point. So what's Micah do with the idols? 
So he restored the money to his mother. His mother, look in verse 4, took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. You have to understand that Micah's house wasn't a little, a little four walls like our house. It was more like a compound. Micah was, was pretty affluent. He had a little, his house for his own family. His relatives probably lived around. Travelers would stay with him. And in the middle of this compound, he puts a great big shrine, a great big shrine, clearly in direct violation of what God told him in Deuteronomy 12. When he said, when you occupy the land of Israel, you're to worship only in one place that God would authorize. Micah. Same as some of us. Like, God didn't really mean that. I know he says it didn't really mean that. And so what does he do? He has a shrine. He surrounds this shrine with other little gods. Then he puts an ephod in there. An ephod is like this, this great majestic robe that the priest would wear. It had the, the breastplate of judgment in it. And they'd inquire of the Lord. And again, God had commanded them only one ephod in all of Israel for the great high priest. So backwards, it's not just little meaningless things. You read this at first, you're like, oh, yeah, they did a few bad things. No, this is completely contrary to everything God told them about how to worship. Micah's messing up God's intention of worship and temples and priests. Case in point, he actually ordains his own priest, his son. Oh, you could, have, you could ordain your son back then? That's amazing. No, you couldn't. Remember priests? They're supposed to be of Levites and or anointed and called by God to serve in God-ordained cities, 48 of them around Israel. So you can't just like put your hands on anybody and give your own job description to a priest. Micah's just doing all these things, thinking he has a monopoly on God somehow. Creating his own little religion in the name of God to go along with it. In verse 7, there's a young man of Bethlehem in Judah, the family of Judah, who was a Levite. And he sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to, so, in Judah to sojourn uh, where he could find a place. So all of a sudden this little, this little rogue priest comes along. And why do we know he's a rogue priest? Because what in the world is he doing wandering around in Israel? They had their cities. They had their jobs. They're supposed to, he's supposed to be in a temple serving God, serving God's people with the tithes of God's people in a prescribed city. Spiritual state of the nation. They're all wandering. Even the priests didn't know what they were doing. They're like, I guess I'll wander around, look for a place to be a priest. Well, there's a temple for you to be a priest in. God ordained. And so this guy stumbles upon Micah. Micah invites him in for the night and has this great idea. Well, you know what? You're more of a priest. You're actually of a Levite, even maybe though he wasn't old enough to be a priest because priests had to be 30 and the emphasis on young priests. Interesting too, if you know, why does he say like two or three times he's from Bethlehem? He's from Bethlehem. Like, we got it the first time. Why does he say that? Because every time the Bible repeats something over and over in a short time, you've got to pay attention to that. Because Bethlehem actually wasn't one of the prescribed cities of the priests. So he's rogue. He's just doing his own thing. And so Micah says, why don't you be my priest? He defrocks his son, makes this priest, unnamed priest, his priest, his family priest, so now I can have a monopoly on God. And the priest willfully says, yeah, man, Micah's offered me a new suit and a salary. Who can turn that down? And already we see just in chapter 17, there's no fear of God at all in this nation. There's no desire to do things God's way. This little Micah anointing his own priest and this priest saying for sure, well, no consulting of God, no fear of God, no desire to do what God wants. And somehow thinking, Micah's thinking he's going to be blessed in all this and he's doing something spiritual and religious. Take note of this because it's nothing about anything about being spiritual and religious even though, even though it has all the religious pretenses and all the makings of like, oh, but he's got good intentions. Take note of this. It's, Good or bad intentions, 
We don't know, but it's nothing at all of what God prescribed. Micah ordained the Levite, verse 12. On whose authority? Micah's. And he was in the house of Micah. In other words, in the name of Micah, he was serving. Then Micah said this, Now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. Are you kidding me? I can do whatever I want and God's going to prosper me? Verse 17 doesn't seem very uh, action-packed, but it's filled with truths for us today. Here's chapter 18 in a nutshell before we get into the application. Chapter 18 in a nutshell. Chapter 17 is about, is about worship is not a matter of personal opinion. It doesn't matter what I think or what feels good to me. Is, it's what God thinks and what's right to God. Chapter 18 is about this. God is not to be leveraged for our own personal gain. God is not to be leveraged for our own personal gain. What's up with all this stuff? 18 shows us what's up. In those days, there was no king in Israel. In other words, there was no godly leadership to lead them in the right way. If there was a godly king in Israel, you know what they would have done to Micah? They probably would have gone into his house and pulled him out of his house and tried him for his, and stoned him for his adulterous ways. That was the prescription in Deuteronomy 13, 6 to 11. But there's no king. There's no godly king. And so there's spiritual upheaval, not just in Micah's family, but also in a broader sense in the whole tribe of Dan. We see it in Micah, now we're going to see a bigger picture of this in Dan. So here's what's happening in those days, in those days, not necessarily the good old days, but in those days, the tribe of the people of Dan was seeking for itself an inheritance to dwell in. For until then, there was no inheritance among the tribes of Israel that had fallen to them. And you're like, what? Well, I thought everyone got an inheritance. Not every tribe got an inheritance. They did. Actually, Dan did get an inheritance. They got the smallest allotment of land when they came into the promised land. And they actually had like a, a pretty rich, fertile land with a sea-bearing port and, and some strong economic possibilities. But here's the deal. They, didn't, they never got their land. You know why? Because of lack of faith and sin, they never really fully inherited their land. And so here they are. They're all cramped up. And look what everyone else has instead of like fessing up to their sin and saying, okay, God, clearly we don't have what we've been allotted because of my own sin. And repenting before God, they take matters in their own hands. Like, all right, well, now's the time. Like, we're cramped. Style's cramped. Like, now's our time. Let's go and take some land for ourselves. So they appoint five different uh, noble men, strong men, wealthy men, to go out and, and seek out the land. And so the, these five men go out on a journey. They come across Micah's house by chance. Not at all. Stop at Micah's house, realize that he's got a priest in there, a Levite priest. And they're like, what's going on? What are you doing in, in Bethlehem? Or in, in Ephraim, you're from Bethlehem. The, the, priest, the priest confidently tells them their story. Like, hey, that's pretty cool. Why don't you, why don't you inquire to the Lord for us? Why, why don't you ask God if, if our journey is going to succeed? Look, at that's in verse, in verse uh, 5 here. And they said to him, inquire of God, please, that we may know whether uh, the journey on which we are setting out will succeed. Notice his response in verse 6. You have to understand this. He doesn't care about God at this point. He's, he's not worried about whether... He's not really seeking the Lord. He's giving them sort of a cookie, a fortune cookie answer. What anyone would, could give them. No fear of God at all. He says, go in peace. That's pretty generic, right? Go in peace. The journey of which you go under is under the eye of the Lord. Crack that fortune cookie open. That's true of everybody, isn't it? 
He doesn't say whether it's a blessing of the Lord or cursing of the Lord. And quite honestly, he didn't care. The, he was more worried about people pleasing and self-preserving. And the, the people of Dan didn't care. This one, the superficial, like, as long as God is with me, we really don't care. So they think, hey, he said it. Let's go with it. It means God's with it. So they go back to their people. They tell them, or they, they, go out, they go on their journey. They find this place called Laish. And Laish is this wonderful land. It's a small land. It lacks nothing, it says in the text. And so they find this land, and actually the perfect land, it's fertile. They have, they have lots of, of opportunity for, for, for growth in, in, in their, their um, produce. They have some sea-bearing country. In fact, they're passive people, which is a good thing if you're going to invade somebody. They're kind of like Canadians, just passive. Yay. Yeah, we just love you, eh? No buddies that can come around and help support them is secluded. And they're like, this is of the Lord. They go back and tell their buddies back in Dan. Dan thinks, fantastic. He rounds up 600 troops, which isn't very many. If you notice from the other accounts, 10,000 troops and however many. They think, this is a shoe-in. We got this place. This is round of a few troops. Let's go in and take this place. God's in it. How can he not be? We inquired of him. They go back and f- to find this. They go back to raid this place. And they come back. On their journeys back, they go past Micah's house again. This time they decide, hey, when we know this guy's not strong, and he's got all these spiritual ornaments, why don't we steal those, and God will truly be on our side. Meantime, they're, they're pilfering this guy. Notice this, they're pilfering the thief. Isn't that ironic, hey? They're pilfering the thief. 600 armed men, it says it twice in the text. We know there's some significance. So they're standing at the Levite priest's door going like, hey, priest, why don't you come with us? That's pretty intimidating, don't you think? No, I'll stay here. No, I'm coming. But they bribe him with not money. They say, hey, look, you got little influence here. Why don't you come and have greater influence over a whole tribe? Got a little salary here. Why don't you come and have a bigger salary? And he's just all in it for himself. He joyfully goes. Joyfully he's in. Woohoo, this is my big break. Everyone's getting their big breaks. God must be with them, right? The tribe of Dan sends her women and children and animals ahead in case. Micah gets all worked up and comes after them. So there's like army between the, the people who mean most to them. And so Micah does get worked up, finds out, comes running after them, shouting and screaming, beat red in the face. Like, what are you guys doing? Who do you think you are? But yeah, bring it on, Micah. Micah realizes that, you know what, I have got nothing. But he has a telltale statement in there. He says this. He goes, who are you to take the idols that I have made and my priests? In other words, it's all about him. Little guy like, you want to fight? You want to fight? You want to fight? And the army's like, yeah, bring it. Bring it. He's like, I can't win. Tail between the legs, walks home. Long story short, Dan goes on to conquer Laish. They burn it down as the custom of that day. They build it back up and put their sign on it to tell everyone they conquered the city of Dan. You know, the first thing they did when they got there, they set up all of their idols again. All of this fulfilling a prophecy, all of chapter 18 fulfilling a prophecy about the tribe of Dan from Jacob in Genesis 49, 17, that they would not hesitate to be vicious and plunder other tribes. In fact, Dan means to judge. It shows God's judgment on the Canaanite town, but Dan was also known to become known as an adulterous city from this time onward, being under the judgment of God. Crazy story. And so this city is established, completely man-centered. The origin, the design, the intention of the city, all the God-makings, but guess what it was void of? God. Ironically, as God always does, he saves a remnant from his own, from the tribe of Dan. You know where Samson comes from? His parents come from the tribe of Dan. Isn't that just like God to 
reveal himself in miraculous ways. And then the chapter ends, though, you have to notice this, the chapter ends just to really punctuate the reality of how far the people had fallen, how far the people had fallen from the reality of God and how he's ordained them to worship him. We have no idea who the priest is in this passage until we come to the end of chapter 18, verse 30. And the people of Dan set up carved images for themselves, clearly not going with God. And Jonathan, Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Moses, and his sons were priests to the tribe of the Danites until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up Micah's carved image that he made as long as the house of God was at Shiloh. This is shocking. This is a shocking twist of the plot. Who is the priest that this all happened to? It was Moses' own grandson, Jonathan. Isn't that crazy? Just two generations removed from one of the greatest leaders the Israelites ever had as far as standing for God and leading God's people in God's ways. His grandson has now totally, totally rejected the God of his grandfather, the God of the universe, and went his own way. Lots of religion in Israel at this point, but no God. Micah, Dan, Israel, this is just showing us the depth of religious darkness, the depth of spiritual void that had come over the people. Remember we read all along, like they did evil in the sight of the Lord, like what kind of evil, what kind of evil? This was the primary evil they did. This is a snapshot of the whole nation. A form of spirituality that had nothing to do with God at all. And everything to do with them. You read these two chapters and right away you probably like me think, okay, well, here's the, here's the, the depravity of the people. Well, it's not that bad. Like, let's get some real, this is that bad. This to God is a slap in the face. This to God is a kick below the belt. This to God is a complete turning away from God. Total disregard, irreverence, no reverence, no respect, no honest desire to seek God. This was the pit of human depravity. And in it, we see a clear picture of how we ought to then respond to God in a completely different way than the Israelites did. Here's what this whole two chapters show us. It shows us the moral, sorry, the spiritual decline of God's people. And it also shows us this, that how we relate to God matters. And our religious expression towards God is not a matter of personal opinion. It's not a matter of what feels good or a matter of what I think. It it is a matter of what God thinks and how God has designed and ordained us to worship him. Let's unpack for this what this means for us in our day and age today. Here's the first thing it means, the only thing it means really. One really application point with three sub points. Here it is this morning. Really simple message. You're going to leave here with really one thought. And I pray that God drives it deep into our hearts in convicting ways, but also in encouraging ways for us. Here's what these two chapters show us. That God expects our full attention and devotion in worship. 
that God expects, that God deserves, or God demands our full attention and our full devotion in worship. Notice in the text, two chapters, Micah, chapter 17. Ignoring every one of God's prescriptions on expressions of faith and worship. Here's Micah's flaw. It's just, it's just God and me mentality. It's just me and God. Forget temple worship. I want my own thing. Forget priests. I'm not listening to anybody. It's just God. Forget what God says. I'm going with the greater God called me. Think about Dan in chapter 18. He'd, he'd all but, they'd all but forgotten God. Their inquiry of the Lord had nothing to do with really inquiring of the Lord. They're looking for a little yes man to pat them on their back and send them on their merry way with a little blessing. Ultimately, both wanted their own little monopoly on God and wanted to relate to God on their terms and nobody else's. Get this. There's really nothing good in these chapters, but they sure remind us of what the good ought to be. There's no, no acknowledgement of God, really. There's no authority. There's no accountability. You know what they've lost most of all? They've lost an awe of God. They've lost an awe of God. And they've put God in this little bracket where he's a little bit of a genie in a bottle that they can manipulate to accomplish their own plans and they can flippantly walk in and out of his presence as they saw fit. They said God is their own little God that, that, that would just bless them, bless them, bless them. Instead of getting on their face to worship the God of the universe. They were worshiping all right in these two chapters, but who were they worshiping? They were worshiping themselves. I honestly read these two chapters, and I don't think it's that far off from the culture that we live in today. Even in the church. View of God, we talk about it so high, but our view of God is so low that we barely give God a second thought throughout our days except for when we need him to accomplish our plans. We've made our worship all about us. Is that a good worship set? Well, I didn't feel good, so it really wasn't good. It's not the way I desire to worship, so... I want to do my thing and still have God too. Let me remind you of this. Here's the three sub-points to this. God desires and demands our full devotion and attention and worship. Let me remind you of this. This, this. this text shows us how far they'd fallen from these realities, that worship must begin with God for us. Worship, true worship, begins with God. It doesn't even matter about you, really, because if you're really worshiping, your eyes are off of you and your little life and your little problems, and as significant as they might be at times, but they're on the bigger reality of the God that we love and the God that we serve. God is in charge, and he should not be taken lightly or flippantly, like the, like the Universe and galaxies and the earth revolve around the sun, so our lives ought to revolve around God's Son, Jesus Christ, and not the other way around. Religious freedom, brothers and sisters, does not mean that you can worship and relate to God however you want to. 
True worship is not a song that we sing. It's not a feeling we get. It's not even an experience we live. Here's what true worship is. It's not even being blessed. Real worship is this. It's giving God your full reverence and respect in everything. It's keeping God up here and me down here. We worship God. Think of that. We worship God. Not, not oh my or, oh, we worship God, Yahweh, King of the universe, the one true God who rules and sits in all authority and, and dominion and power and majesty and beauty. That's who we worship. Yes, God is our friend, but he's not our little buddy next door. Hate to burst your bubble. Bible talks about God as being transcendent. In other words, he's otherly worldly. He's set apart. He's so not like you and I, thank goodness. We think God, we talk God, our mouths should drop in awe. That's how transcendent and how unbelievable God is. Have you lost your awe of God this morning? Treat God like you treat your spouse or your kids or your coworkers and just another guy in your life. God is God. God ought to be high and we ought to be low. The Bible also says, though, that God is not just transcendent, he's also imminent. In other, in other words, God's just not way up in the sky and ruling like some, some CEO that's disconnected from the reality of the rest of the universe. God is also just transcendent. He's also imminent, which means he's close. He's near. He's actively involved in his creation. He loves you and loves I. He loves his creation. And so he's not just high up in the sky. He's also near, nearer than you even know. But the reality is this, that he is still God. To be feared and revered. This is the internal fight that Israel ultimately put them in captivity all those times. They failed to recognize that God is God. Here's what Psalm 96 verses 4 and 5 says. For great is the Lord. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord made the heavens. Church, are you even coming here this morning for you or for God? Are you coming for some inspirational songs and some speech that you're going to agree with or not agree with that you can critique after? Are you coming here to, 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 to worship God, to, to hear from God and express your heartfelt thanks, praise and thanks and worthiness to God today? Hear his words spoken into our hearts. We came here, I pray, for, to worship God and for a word from God. Who even cares about the preacher, let's be honest? We want to know from God today. Let me ask you this, brothers and sisters. Do your prayers start with you or do they start with God? Okay, God, here we are. Line them up. I got things to tell you today, things to ask you today. Are you getting low before God and saying, God, reveal your glory to me today. You tell me what you want today and I will respond instead of me telling you what I want so you can respond. What about your life? When you think of your life, is it your life? It's my life? It's my life? Or is it... God's life to lead you where he's going to lead you to do in you what he wants to do in you. True worship begins with God. I fear, brothers and sisters, we're getting this backwards. 
I fear we're getting it backwards. Me comes before he. This is you today. Like, like turn it around right now. Like, get on your knees in your heart and confess and repent. If God's speaking to you, just confess and repent. Now, God, God, I want you to be God of my life again. Worship, true worship begins with God. Here's the second thing. Worship is done God's way. It's only done God's way. John 4, 23 and 24. New Testament, but the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must, notice this, must worship in spirit and in truth. It's not should, it's not if you feel it. We must worship him in spirit and truth. In spirit, that's a small s spirit. So that's, that's our spirit. In all that we are, we worship God. As fueled by the capital S, Holy Spirit. We worship God. We must worship God with all that we are in spirit, putting our everything into worship, but also in truth. What's truth? All that he is and all that he has designed and all that he has prescribed through his word. This is how God calls us to worship him. He's prescribed a way for his people to worship in both the Old and the New Testaments. In the Old Testament, they gather at a temple in the New Testament, we gather at a gathering called the church. In the Old Testament, they had priests to lead God's people into the presence of God and, and to, to lead them in truth. In the New Testament, God's ordained pastors and elders to shepherd the people and care for the people and exhort the people and encourage the people, God's people, to live for him. We're called in both the Old and New Testaments to live with other believers. God's called us to worship, not in and of ourselves, not with our own little private entity towards God. Now, Old Testament and New Testament both highlight the, that, that worship is living together communally to honor God as a family. And both Old and New Testaments point out to us that there is a, a significant reality of walking into the presence of God. It's not flippant. It's not insecure. In fact, Old Testament, the priests just talked our last group through essentials this past week, Harvest Essentials, reminding them what worship is. The, the priests would consecrate themselves before they went to worship. They'd go through a whole religious ceremony. They'd make sure they're clean and pure on the outside. They'd have a robe on a tie, a little, a little bell on the inside of the bottom of the robe, and then put a rope to the back of their leg that would, they'd leave out in the courtyard just in case they didn't properly do everything. They'd go into the presence of the Lord and fall dead. Someone could pull them up. Bell stops ringing, you start pulling. It's a fearful thing to enter the presence of the Lord. All that was is a picture of the fact that that's how we're supposed to prepare our hearts in the New Testament. It's not to adorn ourselves with outward realities. It's our hearts. Our hearts are to be pure and to be reverent and to be in awe of God when we come to worship. You don't flippantly walk in and out of the presence of God. Even when we come to church, you don't flippantly walk in and hearts unprepared and sin going on but don't care and got your timmies and got everything you're all ready. But one thing you don't have ready is your heart. It honors the Lord when we come eager and ready. There's no such thing as our own little church, our own little monopoly on God. Uh, pastors and priests are public, publicly, they're public functions of men called by God. 
There's so much about the, the church these days, and the church will all come to church, but I'm not going to put myself under the authority of anyone in the church. And, and you know, it's, it's just an institution, the church. You know what that generally means is I don't really want to follow God and follow the authority structure God set up for me. So I'll get out of it some way, and i got my own little thing going on, and I'm only the priest of my house. And yes, we're all pre the priesthood of believers, but God is still ordaining his church as the only institution in the universe that he promises to bless and strengthen to accomplish his purposes. Within the church, there's leaders that God has set up for us. I don't think we're that far, quite honestly, from where they were in Israel's time. It's a reminder for God, a grace of God to hear this so we can get our hearts back on the right track and, and start with God, purify my heart, purify my heart. I want to worship your way, God. I want my heart to be right. I want to encounter you. I want to experience you. I, I want to be uh, under the authority of the church in a healthy, significant way. I want to be worshiping with the body of believers, not as a secondary priority, but as a primary priority in my life. I want to see God alive and well, not just in my house, but in the broader church community, in the family of God in Canada and North America and around the world. I want to truly worship. There's a way to worship. It's not standing boldly, arrogantly in the presence of God. It's getting on our faces before God and worshiping him as he is the king. It's coming to God and saying, God, your way, your plan, your desires, whatever it is, I'm in. That's worship more than the songs that we sing. It's worship. It's desiring who God is on his terms. Brothers and sisters, worship is one of the greatest gifts God has given us as followers of Jesus Christ. It's where our joy is complete, where our hope is found, and it's not found in us. It's found in God. All God wants to do today is get us back on that page, and this sermon's a win. I'm not going to give you all these crazy applications of do this, do that, do this, do that. But all God wants to do today is get us back on the page of getting, allowing God to be God and worshiping him in spirit and in truth. Some of you are there. Praise the Lord. Congratulations. God's grace has been great to you. Keep going. Fight for that. Fight to keep God God. It's a battle. Worship begins with God. Worship must be done God's way. And here's the last thing which we see from this passage so clearly. Worship is for God alone. Worship is for God alone. Here's all that God wanted in the Israelites' life, lives. Here's all he wanted first and foremost. He wanted to be the only God that they loved and served. Not just that he'd be in the equation not just he just be there in this faithless, opportunistic, no integrity reality of their faith, void of devotion to Yahweh, but he wanted to be their God and he wanted to be their only God. This is actually part of the, the, the gospel reality of what Jesus died for us for. He didn't just die to save us from our sin and give us power to overcome our sin. He ultimately died for this, that we could see God, and that we could live our lives in proper relationship with God himself. He actually died to free us to live lives of worship to our creator and our sustainer and the one who's going to glorify us in the end. That's ultimately why God sent Jesus to die for us. More than anything to do with us, it had everything to do with him. 
Notice in these chapters how quickly the Israelites just they've only had the Ten Commandments since Exodus chapter 20. And already by judges, they're breaking them left, right, and center like they didn't even exist. The first two Ten Commandments, which related to the first three, relate to God. The first two were broken just in these two chapters. First commandment is this total recklessness the Israelites came to the commandments of God with. The first commandment was this to have no other gods before me. First commandment, have no other gods before me. Preeminent and prominent in our hearts is to be God. No one else, nothing else. God's not okay if you have a little shrine to God in your heart and then surround it with all kinds of other little gods that, 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 that compete for that throne every once in a while that you're okay with. There ought to be one shrine in our heart, and that's not to do with any idols, or anything, to put God on the throne, and God is the one that we seek to worship. Notice how throughout Judges it was this God and, God plus, God and. Well, I've got God, but I've also got all these backups. No, that's not it. There is one God and one Lord and one Master, and his name is Jesus Christ. Isn't it amazing how we can look at the Israelites and be like, how could they do that? How foolish are they? Put a shrine up with other gods around. Are you kidding me? That's a no-brainer, and yet, I don't know what your human heart, but my human heart's pretty fickle. And I can say I know all these truths, and I can have the shrine to God in my heart, a true shrine to God, but yet the reality is that we all surround ourselves with all the little gods, all the little G-gods around God, just in case he fails us, or just in case we don't think our satisfaction is completely going to come from him. We have all these little gods around our hearts as fallbacks. That's as much apostasy in our hearts as it was in Israel's hearts. No, we don't put little things on our shelves, but we sure do put, take good things and make them ultimate things in our lives. Think about the little idols that you put around God in your life. You have spouses, you have people, you have spouses and kids and parents and friends, and all of a sudden that these are good things and gifts to you of God, but all of a sudden your life revolves around them, and you care more about what they think and what they're doing, more about what God thinks and what God is doing. What about your possessions, your bank accounts, and your business plans, and your bungalows, and your buggies? You get it. You can hold anything closer than God. If I lose, I will be devastated. I love, fill in your own blank, more than anything else. These are detrimental to our lives or devastating to our relationship with God and our spiritual well-being. Here's the last one, people, possessions, and then myself. This is the big battle of our day. We're told from young age to like, you are your own God. No, we're not. Can I just clarify? No, we're not. Thank God we're not. But we put ourselves in that place, elevation of me, my reputation, my respect, my job advancement, my degrees, my positions, get in my way of what I want and I will plow over you. Why? Because I am God. Oh my goodness, if you find yourself in that place today, here's the word for you if you realize that there's other gods competing with God in your life to tear them down. Like Gideon did, tear it down, tear it down, get rid of it, repent of that, and say, God, I want you on the throne again. I only want you. Broke the first commandment. Here's the second commandment they broke, which we can often find ourselves in the same place. Thank goodness for the grace of God this morning, Amen. 
We confess our sin. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I believe God wants to cleanse us today. He wants to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Here's the second command they broke. They, uh, they made carved images. Second commandment was this, that there should be no carved images or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth below or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for the Lord your God is this, is a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, he says. But he shows steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. God was very clear. We're not to have any carved images of God. Why is that? Why is God so meticulous about this law? Why does he not want anything that even resembles him? Here's why. Because God has no physical form and should never be thought of as, as a God in one particular place. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. And God is so complex and intricate that no idol can capture the full essence of his nature. In images of God, here's what they do. They essentially create an impartial and inaccurate view of God. And they actually end up muddying the waters of who you are worshiping. And they leave you open to creating your own version of God. No idol can ever capture the fullness of God. So every time we create a little, a little image of God, what we do is we, we kind of put God in a box and we confine God and we limit God and we, we relegate God to this is God and nothing else. And before you know it, we're actually serving someone that's not God at all. It's the God that we've conjured up in our minds and hearts. And I'm convinced of this, brothers and sisters, that one day when we do get to glory, some people are going to get there and, and they're not going to recognize Jesus at all. They're not going to recognize God because they've made their own little images of God and and. But this is the one I serve. Well, that's the wrong one. You need one from the Bible. What our tendency as humans to do is create these little images of God that create him as this, this cute little cuddly and, and comforting God, which he is on one side, but the, the gentle shepherd is the one we like the most. We hold that one close, and we forget about this, the idea of God, of Jesus coming back as a reigning king in Revelation. He comes back in all glory and all majesty with, with swords, and with, with he's coming back in triumphant glory is what he's coming back with, that when everyone met that Jesus, they hit the deck in a good way, in reverence and awe. And then that Jesus would reach down and be like, hey, hey, lift your chin. It's me, Jesus. Different than maybe your shepherd image, but both images are true. And both images need to be on the, we need to hang up in the hallway of our hearts to get the full picture of God, of Jesus Christ. Why is this important? Why is this so important that God is seen for who he really is? Because God is a jealous God. I'm not talking jealous as in like this pompous little child stomping his feet when he didn't get his own way and crossing his arms not the center of attention. That's not the jealousy we're talking about here. This is a good jealousy. It's this. is because, because God is jealous for his own glory. God is jealous for himself because he is all-consuming. He is all-powerful. He is everything we could ever need or want or long for. Your ultimate desire and satisfaction come in one place and it's in God himself. And God being a jealous God isn't a negative quality. It's showing you how deeply he loves you. It's like a husband who truly loves his wife has a true jealousy for his wife. He's not content coming home from work today and saying, how was your day, honey? She's like, oh, it was really good. Thanks for going out and, and working all day. I love you. And I had a great day spending time with my boyfriend. That's a good jealousy, but I've given you my everything. I just want your everything back. 
or a wife who's okay with her husband loving her but loving his three girlfriends on the side. Like, that's a good jealousy. That doesn't make sense. But I love you with all my heart and I'm giving you everything I have. All I want is 100% of you back. That is the same reality as God and us. He's given us his everything. He's shown us his glory. He's revealed himself in creation. He's shown us himself through his word. He's given himself to us through Jesus Christ, a beautiful picture of who God is, who died on the cross for our sins and, and rose again that might have new life and have a relation with God that we can see God and know God and live life to the fullest in God. God has given us his everything and all he asks for back is not perfection because, man, we can't do perfection. That's why he gave us Jesus. But all he asks for is our whole heart back the best way we know how and all of our humans to say, God, I am going to pursue you imperfectly yet with all that I have. That's all God wants back. And that's what makes God's heart happy. And that's where our worship becomes alive. And that's where our lives truly change. And we get our eyes off of ourselves and onto God. That's what he's created us. That your life is only truly worth living when you see and worship the glory of God. And that's why these two chapters are so informative for us life-changing for us. I trust God is working in your heart the way he did my heart all week long. And I gotta be honest with you, man. I'm an Israelite by nature. Don't like to admit it, but oh my goodness, I'm an Israelite by nature. Here's my life. I had to get on my face and say, God, you gotta change this in me right now. You gotta work in me afresh. I, I again want, God, this is all I want today, uh, this week. I want an awe of you, God. I, I, want, I want your authority. I want your accountability. I want all of you, God. Nothing more and nothing less. We seek God and worship God with that mind and heart, we win. Even if the world crumbles around us, we win. We forget that and we walk the Israelite way and you saw all through Judges, we will We'll win eventually because God's God. But it's not the path of least resistance, that's for sure. And you'll find yourself in many trials and many struggles and many toils because of no one else's fault. It's not even the sin-cursed world's fault. It's my fault because I've chosen to abandon God. Let's agree together today. We're not going to abandon God, amen? Recommitment today to worship God in spirit and truth the way God intended we might feast our eyes on God and see what God's going to do in us and through us for his glory. Let me pray. Wow, God, we love the scriptures. We open them up, and every time we open them up, we seem to see such a clear reflection of who you are and yet also a clear reality of who we are. God, I pray today a simple prayer. Father, would you cause us all right now in this moment, believers, God, to, to once again be filled with an awe and wonder of who you are, to once again, God, long for you and you alone. God, for the unbeliever today, I pray that they would hear this and see this as a warning to them. Not just that they're missing out on this life, God, but they'll miss out on eternity apart from you. Father, with those here that are not stirred to the things of you yet, oh God, would you cause faith and repentance to break into that heart right now, Father. They realize that, that we are all sinners and need a Savior. May we turn, God, personally, individually, right now, maybe for the first time to Jesus, say, Jesus, I've abandoned you, I've walked away from you, I need you and I want you, God. Save my soul. 
Teach me to worship all of us, God. Teach us what it really means to live our lives in subjection to the king of the universe and to know all the blessings and all the promises and all the wonders that go along with that. May not one of us today, God, miss out on you in Jesus' name. Amen.